Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic buildings and neighborhoods. For more than 50 years, HDC has been the only citywide organization that works directly with the constituency of over 500 local community organizations across all five boroughs to preserve and protect New York's rich architectural, historical, and cultural heritage. Working to landmark and protect significant neighborhoods and buildings, and understanding and upholding the New York City Landmarks Law. For more information, visit hdc.org. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. The Bowery Boys episode 391, A Walk Through Little Caribbean. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with part two of our story of Flatbush, with a focus on the Caribbean cultures that help define it today, and especially on the part of the neighborhood today called Little Caribbean. But we're not going to just sit inside a recording studio talking about this. Mm-mm. No, it's, it's much too nice outside. It's the start of summer. <laughs> we are going on a walking tour. A a food tour, in fact. It's the best kind. But first, let us recap, because in the last episode, we explored the rich history of the Brooklyn neighborhood of Flatbush, from its Dutch days when it was quite rural, up through the 20th century with the Brooklyn Dodgers and the King's Theater, and into present-day 21st century Flatbush. And at the end of our story, we spoke with Shelley Worrell from the community action group I Am Caribbean about how she led an effort to designate part of the neighborhood Little Caribbean. Well, in just a few minutes, we're going to walk the streets of Flatbush with Shelley as she takes us on a mini food and culture tour of Little Caribbean. And for that reason, I have not eaten anything yet today, Tom. <laughs> I know you're hungry. Actually, the microphone is picking up your stomach growling, Greg. Maybe step <laughs> It is. Back. It is. I'm move sorry. Um, but first, to situate us, let's take a step back and look at the bigger story, the larger story of Caribbean immigration to New York City. And fortunately, we have another expert on the show to help set the scene here. We're joined now by Dr. Taisha Maddox, an assistant professor at Fordham University's Department of African and African American Studies, to talk about how people from the Caribbean first began immigrating to America and the challenges they faced over the past century. 
Hello, and welcome to the show, Taisha. Thank you so much for having me today. Dr. Maddox, thank you for talking with us before we head out on our Flatbush walking tour. In our last show, we discussed how a Caribbean community developed here in Flatbush in the 20th century. But if we could just step back for a moment, what did Caribbean immigration to the United States look like in the late 19th century and the early 20th century? So that's actually a great question. The group of Caribbean immigrants that came on at the turn of the century were a very different group of people that came later on in the 20th century, especially after 1960. So this first group of people were definitely a smaller group of immigrants that were coming, still in significant numbers. The period that I study, 1890 to 1940, there were over about 350,000 people coming in Mm -hmm. between those uh, 50 years. So a significant amount, but not the numbers that we see post-1960. Women were traveling for the first time. So we have um, a very unique situation in the 20th century where we have more women traveling to the U.S. um, from the Caribbean than in the previous uh, century which is also something unique because when we think of immigration, we tend to think of young males who immigrate, but it was actually young women in this early period. They were coming mostly to the Northeast, um, to New York City in particular, um, was a very popular destination for Caribbean immigrants. And any particular nations or islands that you could sort of mention here, were were people coming from all of the islands or did it depend on sort of like their their legacy and, you know, if they were, had been Dutch or English or Spanish? So I specifically research Anglophone Caribbean immigration. And so I know um, from my own studies that people were coming from all over the Anglophone Caribbean. You have people from Jamaica, Trinidad, St. Lucia, from some of the bigger islands all the way to the tiniest islands like Montserrat. We know mm-hmm. that there were people who were coming from Montserrat and, and Nevis, um, places that are very small and very rarely talked about. Outside of the Anglophone Caribbean, we know that there were people who were coming from the Spanish Caribbean, um, particularly from Cuba, Puerto Rico, which at the time was in flux on whether or not it was a U.S. territory. Um, We Mm -hmm. know after 1917, it becomes a U.S. territory. So not really immigration, but migration from uh, Puerto Rico and also from Dominican Republic. We have a little bit later um, in the 20th century. We do see small numbers of people coming from the French Caribbean, um, particularly from Haiti later in the century. But it's not until I think 1960s that we really see the full diversity of the Caribbean represented in New York City. In the earlier 20th century and at the turn of the century, we see mostly from the Anglophone Caribbean people coming to New York City. The Spanish Caribbean, we see large representation in places like Florida. They were going to Florida specifically. Well, I wanted to ask about a very significant law that comes into play here, the Immigration Act of 1924. Why was this law passed? And how did it affect people who wanted to come to the United States? How did it, how did it affect Caribbean immigrants in specific? So yeah, so that law, the Immigration Act of 1924, was actually really important on um, called the Johnson Reed Act. It came in the years following um, World War One. And so at this time, unfortunately, the U.S. government was very xenophobic and began to really tighten their immigration laws. And so between 1910 and 1924, they actually passed a series of laws. So the 
Johnson Reed Act was the actual like the culminating uh, law that put a halt to a lot of immigration. And so what the Johnson Reed Act of 1924 did is it set a national quota for each country and each of their individual territories. So at the time I'm studying the Anglophone Caribbean, they're part of the British Empire. And so that drastically changed the amounts of people who were coming. Prior to 1924, we see like large numbers of Caribbean immigrants coming into New York and into the United States in general. And then after 1924, we see those numbers completely like go down to maybe like 10 or 20, something like crazy like that Mm. because of this law. And we actually had lots of people who were going back to the Caribbean. So we had reverse migration back to the Caribbean. We also know that at this time there was a rise in like illegal immigration, people stowing away on ships, coming in through illegal means because they weren't allowed to come in officially. I don't want to say that there was like carte blanche before these laws were set into place, But I would say definitely there were more lax immigration rules and regulations. And after 1924, they definitely become more strict and stringent. Now, so there is this period where there is so little immigration coming into the country from all countries because of this law. In fact, this is actually why Puerto Rican migration actually increases because there are these job opportunities for Puerto Ricans who can come to the United States. But it's not accurate to say that there was none, and especially around World War II, right? There were there were some job opportunities, and a lot of Caribbean immigrants took advantage of those opportunities. So during World War II, because of the lack of um, workers that they had and the increase of like agricultural work on and industrial like factory jobs, there actually was an increase. Uh, We see an increase in Caribbean immigration specifically for wartime jobs. In the agricultural sector, um, there was a commission that was started called the Anglo-American Caribbean Commission. And so that was commissioned, I believe, in like 1942. And it was specifically to have Caribbean migrants come and work in agricultural and non-defense jobs. And so as a result, we have lots of laborers who are coming from around the Caribbean. Most of them were coming from Jamaica to work in farms throughout America Mm. and to work in these non-defense jobs. So that's actually when we start to see the rise again after 1942 um, of Caribbean immigration back um, to the U.S. And that's where I was um, making the mention between that like first wave of Caribbean immigration at the turn of the 20th century Most of the people who were coming were highly educated. They had professional job skills. When 1942, when they're being recruited specifically for agricultural work, then that changes the type of people who are migrating. And so we have people who who don't have uh, professional skills, but working like agricultural and farming and things like that, um, not necessarily from middle class and also aren't as highly educated. So we see a change in the type of people who immigrate between the turn of the 20th century and then in the 1940s because they were being recruited for very specific things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, all of this changes again. In just a couple more decades, right, with a new law called the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, what were the effects of this law? Because in a way, it it really overturned that quota system that had been established many decades before. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I would, I guess, I call like the, the second wave. When people tend to think or 
think of Caribbean immigration. And when we study Caribbean immigration, that's where most of the um, research comes from, this 1965 period, because that's when we see the numbers like quadruple. And we have a mass number of Caribbean immigrants. And not even just from the Caribbean. We have people coming from everywhere in 1965 and after. And we have large numbers of people coming from the Caribbean. And I think a direct impact of that is that's when we start to see the development of like Caribbean enclaves. So what became then the in, in the 20th century, where did these communities really f- first develop? So at the turn of the 20th century into the 1920s and 1930s, we see Caribbean immigrants basically like subsuming, becoming part of the African-American community. When we think of the Harlem Renaissance, many of the writers, musicians, and were actually from the Caribbean and Caribbean immigrants, but they were able to blend in to, mm-hmm. to the African-American community. But then as the prices and the demands of the Harlem Renaissance became more increased, um, similar to what we're seeing today, the rise in uh, rent prices forced people out of certain neighborhoods. We saw Caribbean immigrants um, moving into Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy became a very popular place, mostly because of the beautiful brownstones. And so many Caribbean immigrants saw Bed-Stuy as a place they could purchase homes for themselves and develop roots within the United States. But in 1965, because their numbers are so much more significant, they began to create their own communities. And so we see Caribbean enclaves forming after this period. And I think that's a direct impact of that huge mass number of Caribbean immigrants that are coming. They're being able to open their own stores, um, shops, develop their own neighborhoods, and bring much of their Caribbean cultural traditions with them after 1965. That's when we see places like Canarsie, Flatbush, those areas having very significant Caribbean populations and becoming what they are today. And I would say today in 2022, when we think of Caribbean enclaves in New York City, definitely uh, places like Crown Heights, Flatbush, Washington Heights, and then areas of the Bronx have strong Caribbean um, enclaves within them. Now, you just mentioned, of course, that especially during the Harlem Renaissance, that so many of those creators were Caribbean. Now, what I find fascinating back to this immigration law of 1965, that you have all of these new Caribbean arrivals into America right at the height of the civil rights movement. And, you know, even back in the 20s, you had like Marcus Garvey, right? Like he came from Jamaica. So Caribbean Americans were always a part of that, even from the start. How did the arrival of, you know, many more thousands of Caribbeans into the United States help energize the civil rights cause here? Yeah, so I would say Caribbean immigrants have always played a part in Black radical politics. My work focuses on like I mentioned, the 1920s and 1930s, Mm -hmm. and specifically these group of Caribbean immigrants who are heavily involved in um, Black radical politics, fighting against Jim Crow racism in the United States, fighting against tenants' rights, immigration issues. Caribbean immigrants have always been very active in U.S. politics, and even more so in 1960s and beyond. Because at this point, they're allowed to receive citizenship and they can naturalize and then become able to vote. But even Mm -hmm. before they had rights to vote and they were made full citizens, they were still actively involved in um, local politics. We have people like Shirley Chisholm, right, whose parents Mm -hmm. are from Martinos, who becomes um, the first Black woman to run for a major Democratic office. And we know throughout the 20th century, 
many of the local politicians have Caribbean roots within New York. And so they're very active within these movements. And we've been talking here, you know, generally speaking, of a Caribbean American community. But of course, that's made up of all of these different islands and, and nations. So what is your take on sort of generally speaking, the dynamic of shared culture, shared pride? You know, I, I'm thinking of the West Indian Day Parade, which seems to be a celebration of all things West Indian and Caribbean. What, is there a tension there between a celebration of sort of pan-Caribbean pride and actual national pride? There are a lot of things happening with Caribbean identity and pride and nationalism. So early Caribbean immigrants didn't see themselves as Caribbean. They saw themselves as from their own nations. And it is not actually until they come to the U.S. that they meet people from other parts of the Caribbean, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is definitely a recognition of shared experience within the Caribbean, especially people who are coming from different nations, like from the Spanish Caribbean or from the British Caribbean or the French Caribbean, right? There's these shared experiences of colonialism and empire. And language. And language that mm -hmm. they recognize that they're part of. And then so at the same time, while they're figuring out, you know, who they are within this Caribbean identity, they're also many of these people are Black and so they're also figuring out who they are in relation to African-Americans, especially when they're working at the same jobs with African-Americans, because to average Americans, they see them as Black people, they're African-American. They don't mm -hmm. see any differences. And so they're living in the same places that African-Americans are living. They're working in the same jobs. And so they're often relegated together. And so not only are they figuring out who they are in terms of this pan-Caribbean identity, they're also figuring out who they are in relation to African-Americans and how they are Black in America and how that, however that is different from their own individual countries, especially when many of these people are coming from majority Black countries to the U.S. where they're now a minority, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so they're like dealing with all of these things going on at the same time. And we see that continue into the later uh, 20th century and into 21st century. I think it becomes easier in the 21st century when there are communities of people already established here. But yeah, we definitely see this. And I kind of lost track of the question. Uh, well, no, because the question was sort of like something you might put on a college <laughs> essay. I think it's a fascinating question of ethnicity, right? And also where people immigrating from Caribbean nations, how they feel about themselves as Americans today, as African-Americans today. I mean, they're dealing with being, as you said, both African-American and immigrants. That's a lot. Black immigrants who aren't even often thought of as an immigrant group, but there are definitely issues and, and special things that come along with being an immigrant, not understanding the culture, the politics. And these are things that they're dealing with, but they're not viewed as immigrants. And so they don't have the same allowances that other maybe immigrant groups might have. They're just mm -hmm. expected to fit in and understand how it works and just jump right into it. And, and so something like the West Indian Day Parade is important then for bringing people together. Yeah. So I think um, the, crib, the West Indian Day Parade that occurs, yes, it's the site of national pride. So we see people with their different flags representing their different countries. This, I think, comes mostly after many of these countries, especially in the 60s and 70s, when they receive independence. So you see this national pride after this period because these countries are now independent. They're not well, no longer part of like many of these empires. 
And so we see this pride in in their national state. But at the same time, it is a place where they see it as a place to come together. And so even though you have individual flags, they understand that they're part of this larger Caribbean community and they're celebrating that. I think the Caribbean Day Parade serves as a way to exert their Caribbean-ness to extend cultural traditions to younger people who are uh, either born here or were too young when they came over. Mm-hmm. So it's a way for them to experience dance, costume, food, culture in so many ways in this one like place. And so I think even though it comes off as like a party, I think it holds really important c- cultural and traditional values. It really is a way to connect themselves and keep connected to their home countries. And did the parade, did these celebrations start here in Brooklyn? No, they did not. (laughs) They actually started um, in Harlem. They were actually celebrating in ballrooms. And as we know, the Caribbean West Indian Day Parade comes out of this tradition of carnival um, Mm -hmm. pre-Lenten celebration. And so usually in the Caribbean, it's warm in that pre-Lenten period. That's like February, March. Mm -hmm. And so they would have them in ballrooms in Harlem. And then one woman, Jesse Wardle, she's from Trinidad. She actually wanted to host it as an outdoor festival. And so she petitioned to move it to the first day of that Labor Day, that Monday of Labor Day on Lenox Avenue in Harlem. And it was there for many years. And then it moved in the, I believe, 1960s. They moved it to Brooklyn. And that's how it moves away from the Lenten calendar and actually is in September because they wanted to have it outdoors. It's cold in New York in Mm -hmm. February, March, Mm -hmm. so they couldn't do it then. And so they moved it to Labor Day Monday and also in Brooklyn because at that time in 1960s, Crown Heights was becoming a very popular Caribbean enclave. And it's back in the streets this year, September 5th. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your upcoming book project, like what it's all about? So I I have a um, manuscript that hopefully should be out for publication next year. And it's called A Home Away From Home, Mutual Aid, Political Activism in the Construction of Caribbean American Identity, 1890 to 1940. It looks at the immigration, this early immigration of Caribbean immigrants, Anglophone Caribbean immigrants to New York City in particular, Harlem. And it looks at the mutual aid societies that these Caribbean immigrants form as a way to uh, welcome each other into the U.S., help them get settled. They serve as like grassroots political organizations. And so they help Caribbean immigrants become really involved in these radical politics of the 1920s and 1930s. And where can our listeners find more things that you have have written already? So yes, so you can find it on my website, TaishaMaddox.com. That's T-Y-E-S-H-A, Maddox, M-A-D-D-O-X.com. There is lots of my research, publications, and some of my media things on there. Well, Dr. Maddox, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bowery Boys. And I'm sorry you can't come with us to the Flatbush Food Tour, but you'll be there in spirit with us. Some clear rolls for me. <laughs> oh, oh, I hope so. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, Greg, let's hit the road right after this. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic neighborhoods. In addition to advocating for significant historic and cultural communities, HDC offers a robust series of free and low-cost educational programs throughout the year. 
Join them for preservation school classes, for neighborhood advocates, in-person and virtual walking tours in all five boroughs, and features on their annual Six to Celebrate Priority Neighborhoods. For more information, visit hdc.org. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council and Councilmember Benjamin Kalos. Greg and I met up in Flatbush at the old Dutch Reformed Church at Flatbush Avenue and Church Avenue, and then walked a couple blocks north along busy Flatbush Avenue to meet Shelley at our first stop, Peppa's, at 738 Flatbush Avenue, just north of Woodruff Avenue. Hello, Shelley. Hey, guys. How are you? (laughs) Good. So so nice to meet you. We are so hungry. Peppa's is a small, busy operation that specializes in jerk chicken, and it's takeout only. Shelly handed us food containers filled with steaming hot chicken and something wrapped in tin foil. We moved around the corner to a slightly quieter spot on Woodruff Avenue to eat and talk. I this is just this is absolutely delicious, jerk chicken. Um, and wait, I can't even. I have to even rip. Greg even is trying to. We're standing at the corner of Woodruff and Flatbush, and Greg is fidgeting with <laughs> this most succulent-looking meal. It's the most delicious jerk chicken um, with bread right next to it. This um, is not bread. This is festival, which is oh, oh, basically sorry. like a fried bread. But oh, okay. let's call it the right name. It's festival. Yes. So it's a fried sweet dough, which can be found in different iterations throughout the Caribbean. So this particular version is called festival. A fried dough, kind of like a. Can you open it up? I can't even see what I'm. Let's let's open it, looks it up. It's like and a take dumpling. A oh, like elongated, a little sweet. There's a little bit of a donut. Yeah, kind of a donut, happening. kind of density. Oh, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, it, it's like a. Looks like a croissant. Yours? I was thinking the same thing. That one <laughs> does one look does. like a croissant. Take your take a bite. I want to see. I want to see the face. Oh, it's crunchy. Mm, yeah, it has a um, maybe like a hush puppy. It has mm. a kind of crispy edge. Yep. Kind of like a donut, but not sweet. Right, exactly. And this is from Peppa's. This is from Peppa's, which is an iconic jerk chicken restaurant. This is their flagship, their very first. Peppa's is their se- um, location. There are several. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with jerk chicken, but could you describe really kind of what that is? Yeah, so um, jerk is typically a rub, so that this chicken is marinated in a spicy jerk rub, and then it's always cooked and prepared on an open flame. Right. So that gives it that really smoky grilled flavor. Um, And often in in Jamaica, which is where jerk chicken originates in other parts of the Caribbean, it's also a very popular street food. So something that you'll have at the beach or before or after a party, because, of course, then you can set up a grill anywhere. Um, Tom, would you like to try try a little bit of this? (laughs) Well, I'm holding the mic. Um, Once we're done with this segment, I will take it. Yeah, don't eat it all. Uh, And it's covered in the sauce, too. Yeah, so this... Um, at Peppa's, they have a spicy house sauce as well as a barbecue sauce that they top it off with. I made mine extra spicy because I love spicy food. And yours is slightly spicy because I wasn't sure. But <laughs> That's fine. But no, I'm no. I'm prepared. I've got it. I've got the Toms. Everything's prepared. But no jerk chicken is, you know, you, you definitely need the sauce. It adds like that another flavor dimension to it. So today, um, what is our plan here? We're going to do a little island hopping. Yes, we're starting at Peppa's, and then I'm going to take you to what I call the power block of Little Caribbean, which is on Nostrand Avenue between Maple and Midwood. So we're going to first stop at Le Bay Market, which is a Caribbean-owned Caribbean market, which has, is full of a lot of, a lot of treats, so you'll love it. 
And then that block is bookended by Allen's Bakery, which is a third-generation family-owned bakery, which we adore. But um, to be clear, actually, you can kind of eat your way up and down Flatbush Avenue. There's so many delicious restaurants of different varieties of Caribbean food, right? That's exactly right. So you can island hop on Flatbush, on Nostrin, on Church, on Utica. Uh, really, the whole neighborhood is, is filled with delicious Caribbean cuisine. Um, and that's one of my favorite things about the neighborhood. It's an especially special moment here. You mentioned in uh, in our last show that you grew up in Flatbush. I did. So where did you grow up, uh, sort of, so based was, on where we are right now? So when I was born, my parents lived on Bedford and Martens. Um, okay. 2150 Bedford, more specifically, which is right off of Nostrand Avenue. And my mom worked at the original Sears that was just closed down on, on Bedford as well. Um, she was an accountant there. She worked, you know, sort of like in their back offices. And then from there, we moved to Beverly Road. Um, mm-hmm. which is not far from here, um, close to Cookies. Over on the on west, the west side, side of, of Flatbush, Flatbush, right? Yeah. So going towards Victorian Flatbush or Dittmas Park. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we moved to Kensington, then to East Flatbush. Um, and now I live close to King's Theater. So my life has come full circle. <laughs> um, and how would you describe maybe the evolution of the kind of commercial district here? Were there as many like Caribbean restaurants, for instance, like, you know, say 20 years ago or when you were a girl? Or... Yeah, I mean, I remember it being very Caribbean still back then. I think right now we're seeing the shift with gentrification happening. So you're starting to see a lot more cafes, a lot more sit down restaurants. Some blocks have two or three coffee shops, right? Wow. And I will note that we are standing and eating. <laughs> we right are now. standing. And this is how this is the proper way to eat Caribbean it street is. food. Right? On, the, on the sidewalk. With your hands. You see, I'm eating my, my chicken with my hands. So, um, and still elegant. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, but there are also a new generation of Caribbean restaurants and cafes that are opening up as well. So some notable ones are Hibiscus Brew, which is a Jamaican coffee shop. And they not only, of course, cater to some of the new residents, but also they insert their Caribbean flavors with sorrel. There's a sorrel smoothie. There's mm. Slips Cafe. Yum. Across the street, you have Aunts and Uncles, which is a plant-based restaurant. That would have been my other block that I would have taken you to. It's called the Lit Strip. And Lip means like almost like hip. Uh-huh. Um, but it's sort of like a more urban, cool way to say hip. So we say lit. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, so you see, it, you know, there's this really interesting mix. It's a really a great moment to, to live in Flatbush. I mean, Peppa's has several locations, but would you say that for the most part, a lot of these businesses are what we might call mom and pop? Yeah, um, most of them are, are one location, but what, what we're seeing is it's quite a few of the businesses, even the ones that opened during the pandemic, they're opening second storefronts or they're expanding because of, of demand. A lot of people want to pull up to this neighborhood because it's actually still home to a large concentration of Afro-Caribbean, not only people, but also culture and food. So it's really a great place to just come and lime. It's a great place to come eat, shop in lime. And so when you see our banner project on um, Rogers and on Nostrin, that's exactly what it says. It says, eat, shop, lime. And lime in the Caribbean means to hang out, like we're doing right now. We're liming. We are hanging. We are liming. And actually, behind you, Shelly, going down Flatbush, I just noticed a white van. You should take one. Yes, yeah, so that's a dollar van. That is a dollar van, which is now, I hear, $2.75 or maybe even $3. Inflation. <laughs> oh, everywhere. it's gas prices. <laughs> <laughs> so where do those run? So there's one that runs the Flatbush Avenue. One runs from King's Plaza, mm-hmm. iconic old Brooklyn all the way downtown Brooklyn. Mm. We should always check because sometimes they do shorter routes. They may not go all the way to the plaza, right? So you have to say plaza. 
They're Dalavan Roots also on Utica Avenue. So from Eastern Parkway to the plaza. So I remember as a child growing up and when you got off of the subway at Utica and Eastern Parkway, the four train, they would say, Utica, Utica, Utica. And then now, and there are also um, routes along uh, Church Avenue as well. But I mean, the dollar vans are really a lifesaver to a lot in the community because during the pandemic when, or even during the hurricanes when MTA was shut down, dollar vans was really what got people to and from work. I mean, they adapted their routes so they can go to Manhattan. To be honest with you, they're a lot faster than taking the bus. No, sh no shade to MTA, but... Oftentimes, if you, if you, I almost took a dollar van here. Oh. <laughs> I almost took a dollar van here, but then I would have been extra late. And I didn't want to keep you waiting. And in terms of your family story, I've read in some of the pieces that you're, you've been featured in that your family is from Trinidad and Tobago. Can you tell us about that? And, and are there Trinidadian restaurants as well? Yes, yeah, so my, I'm first generation Trinidadian American. Both my parents migrated here in the 60s and 70s, respectively. My father in the 60s. And my mother in the 70s, so my father is Afro-Caribbean and my mother is Indo-Caribbean. Um, so I'm actually, I have uh, mixed heritage. Um, and yeah, of course, there's a lot, a ton of great um, Trinidadian restaurants in the neighborhood. You have just up this way, um, which is, I'm pointing south, for those of you who can't um, see on Flatbush from Woodruff. Um, you have Jen's, Jen's Roti. North of us, we have uh, my fate, one of my favorites, the Hot Pot. Um, I really shouldn't say this on air because uh, there's already a line out the door. Um, but they have some of the best doubles. We have Susie's on Church Avenue. Jen's has a second location also on Church Avenue. So there is a ton of really great Trini food. Arguably some of the best food in the Caribbean is from Trinidad. I think largely because of the cultural diversity. So you have the East Indian uh, population mixed with the Afro-Caribbean population. And then we also had a large influx of Chinese. So there's actually Chinese, just like in Jamaica, we have Chinese Trinidadian food, which is amazing. My mother, every time she goes to Trinidad, like that's one of the first things she wants to eat, even when she comes to Brooklyn. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of Chinese food in this yeah. neighborhood. Um, you have to go to Crown Heights um, to Trini, um, Trinidad Golden Palace, which is one of the better locations. Um, their current strolls are also amazing, to the best in Brooklyn. <laughs> Also, the carnival was in the West Indian Day Parade was started by Trinidadians in addition uh -huh. to Juve, right? And they're both, well, I wouldn't say they both are modeled, but certainly the um, West Indian American Day format is modeled after carnival in Trinidad, you know, with the caveat that it's on one avenue versus the entire city, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. also, you could arguably say the entire country is celebrating carnival or most of it. So, um, whereas here, we're just limited to that one block, the, the parade route. From Peppa's, we walked up Flatbush two and a half blocks to Errol's Caribbean Delights, a bakery and restaurant located at the corner of Flatbush and Hawthorne. Shelley ordered a round of dark red juices for the three of us. So what's happening here? We've got some juices. So we have sorrel, and this particular one, we spike it with ginger bear, so it's really amazing. It's a little spicy almost, but... Good spicy, not like spicy, spicy. There's a little bite to it. And this is picking up uh, juices at the Caribbean Delights Inc. At Errol's um, Caribbean Delights. So this is a, another um, Jamaican bakery. They're also really well known for their patties. Their patties are amazing. But we're we're a little full, so we're gonna save ourselves for Notion Avenue. <laughs> and this is, I must I must add, this is a delicious deep red. This drink, um, and it looks it looks very. <laughs> I'll take a picture of it. Take a portrait. 
Oh yeah, it is like it's a nice big cold glass of wine. <laughs> from, from the outside, doesn't that taste like wine? Exactly. Okay. You guys want to start walking over? So we made it over to Nostrand Avenue and a nice little walk and we saw some really beautiful beautiful housing stock such a pretty block yeah so we walked over on Hawthorne which is a really really pretty block and we just made a quick pit stop um, at African Records Center they're um, located here on Nostrand Avenue and this is a treasure trove this is really almost like a living museum. Their sign, which is extremely old New York, it reads Haitian, Zouk, Antilles, which is also the Caribbean and French, compact disc and cassettes. <laughs> Do you remember cassettes and CDs? I love cassettes. Do, I, Do they I have 8-track? <laughs> Do I remember that? Well, so yeah, so obviously it's been here for decades. And uh, let's, can we peek inside? Yeah, let's, let's take a look and hopefully they'll play some tunes for us. So we headed into the African Record Center on Nostrand Avenue with walls lined with LPs and a table in the center covered in 45 RPM vinyl singles. In the middle of the store, behind a record player, stood one of the shop's owners, Roger Francis. Hi. Hi. What are you spinning right now? Uh, We're spinning Ebenezer Obe, Nigerian musician playing juju music. Fantastic. What year is this? Uh, this year is 1983, to be precise. <laughs> um, and not only, of course, do you have CDs, but of course you have all these vintage and new out record albums. And of course, and are, are a lot of these are they imported, or do you just do you order them, do, or do, do people come in and buy them and sell them used, or these are all new records? Okay. We've been here for 53 years. We introduced African music 53 years ago, and all of this is stock that we've had over that period of time. So the records in here range from, uh, let's say, 1969 to 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And they're all original albums. And who's one of your hottest artists who people come in and ask for? There are a few. Franco and OK Jazz. Uh, one of the biggest artists that Africa has produced mm-hmm. is from Zaire Congo. And of course, Fela. We introduced Fela here. We introduced Ebenezer Obey. We introduced all the African artists. But favorites would be Franco, Fela, um, quite a few other Ghanaian artists, Tabulero Shiro, that some people know. It goes on and on. <laughs> I bet you are very, very popular with the DJ scene here in New York City. I feel like every DJ that I've even been involved with or have gone to that has had Caribbean or African sounds probably got them from here, I imagine. You're 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we just had a DJ in here from L.A. Uh-huh. He flew in to pick up some records. I think he's on his way back having lunch or something, you know? <laughs> but we get all the DJs uh, from all over. They come here for the African music, for Caribbean music as well. Well, thank you for showing us yes, around. Oh, so no problem. I am, I'm, I'm going to come back for my... I just dusted off my record player, so now I'm going to find some new ones when I get back. So thank you very much. A pleasure. Thanks for coming, thank okay? You. Thanks, Shelly. Okay. okay. Thanks, Shelly. <laughs> oh, okay. One quick picture of the... So where are we going now? So now we're going to the power block. We're going to the Bay Market. Let's go. We're walking north on Nostrand. 
<laughs> so where are we? Three coconuts. Please. Three coconuts, please. So we're at Le Bay Market, which is on the corner of Midwood and Nostrand. Um, this is a really special market because it's a West Indian-owned West Indian market, mm. right? And it's one of the very few um, in in this part of, of Brooklyn. Um, and the other thing that's really special is the owner, Mac, he actually imports a lot of the produce from his own estate in Grenada and Karaku. Mac is a neighborhood treasure. I would almost say a national treasure or an international treasure. We love him. If you come here, you'll definitely recognize him. He's really tall, very friendly, very welcoming. Um, so this is where we come to shop when we want to cook at home. But this is also where you come to get a fresh coconut, like we're about to have, some fruits from the islands. Or if you want to make sorrel, just like we just had, yeah. you can grab some sorrel bush. Oh, so they have the sorrel. We can make our own sorrel juice, Greg. Yeah, and you could buy all the spices here. You could buy the cinnamon. You could buy all, You could buy cloves. You could get the essence. You can even get West Indian sugar here. So here's some Greg sorrel. Greg has just grabbed a bag of sorrel. I have a bag of sorrel, but we're also standing near um, a display of aloe vera. And mangoes and sweet oranges and of course dry coconuts. Dry coconuts. <laughs> this is what we use to cook or you my mom she makes a delicious bread with this. It's called coconut bake. Mm. Mm. So where do we grab our coconut? We're gonna go around the corner. So tell your listeners on the weekends and even on a hot summer day there's usually a line. So be prepared to when you're on the power block you have to be prepared <laughs> whether you're going to Allen's or you're going to La Bay. It's a cultural experience. Yeah. Just take it easy, chill out. Yeah, I mean, you're on island time, right? <laughs> Greg, we're on island time. I hope so. Okay, we have a receipt proving that we paid for the coconut juice. That's exactly right. So you pay inside and then you wait online outside. Luckily today, there's not really a line. There's only one person ahead of us. <laughs> Standing near crates and crates and crates of, of coconuts. coconuts. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Heavenly. No, we're gonna eat them and we're gonna drink them in a coconut. They want authentic experience. <laughs> Wait, there's a cup option? Yeah, I mean, some people they buy coconut for a few days or for more than you know their family, so you could actually take it home and put it in the fridge, right? But we're gonna drink it right, now. right out it's of the coconut. It's best in the now, just like in the Caribbean, right? Yeah, yeah of course. Who wants to drink coconut <laughs> coconut water out of a a bottle? No. <laughs> Who am I, Kim Kardashian? No. <laughs> oh, he's holding the coconut in his left hand, and he has a machete in the right hand, cutting off the ends with precision. You can. You have to be. <laughs> Watch your fingers. I don't want to distract him. Here you guys. Whoa, so Shelly's handing Greg the, the coconut with the top wow. shaved off and there's still a little film over the... That film is jelly. It's jelly. We're Thank you, sir. Good. Thank you We're very much. We're getting you straws. We're getting you straws. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Wait, he, maybe better, maybe better with a straw. <laughs> Can you oh, get a it's photo? So good oh my god, it's so good. No. So now we're at the corner of Maple and Nostrand at the iconic third generation family owned Allen's Bakery. Mm. And I would say this is one of the most famous food establishments in the Little Caribbean, right? I mean, I, 
I've known about this for a long time, so I'm very excited to be here. What makes it so famous? I mean, it's been here for so long, mm -hmm. but I would I'll also argue their currants rolls, their breads, their patties, their delicious holiday and birthday cakes that have become part of so many of our lives. Not only, you know, for special occasions, whether it's a christening, a wedding, birthday, holiday. So, I mean, just everything here is so amazing. I mean, everyone loves baked yumminess, right? And you mentioned patties. Can we talk patties for a second? What exactly is, is a patty a savory dish? In our case, often it is a savory dish, and this is actually a different kind of patty. So there are many varieties of patties in the Caribbean. So you have a Haitian patty, which is very similar to like a croissant. My favorite of from, from Haiti is the uh, smoked herring patty, the herring. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course you have Jamaican patties, right? Which um, the most popular is beef patty with like maybe a cocoa bread. So it's like a carb attack, dough on dough. Uh, but you, Sign us up. But you also have other flavors, delicious flavors like jerk chicken, callaloo, pumpkin, lentil patties. People are, are really having, really experimenting and pushing patties out of their, their norms. But at here you find the little mini patties, which are cocktail patties, cocktail that, patties. which we typically have at a party. Like a so pig in a blanket. Well, <laughs> kind of. It's two bites, a two bite patty. What do you guys want to get? I think I need a patty. A patty? So yes, yeah, so these are um, salt fish cakes. This is salt? No. no this one. Oh, and tennis rolls. Mm. Hi. Can we have um, two cards rolls? One beef patty. And so, with a bag filled with currant rolls, meat patties, and salara, coconut turnovers, we left Allen's Bakery and headed south on Nostrand, ducking into the appropriately named Rain Eatery and Juice Bar between Rutland Road and Fenimore Street. So it's raining outside. It so is. It's a little drizzly. So we stopped into Rain Eatery here on Nostrand Avenue. And it's also Caribbean owned. It's part of Little Caribbean. So it's perfect. Look, any place that sells mac and cheese and roasted sweet potatoes is a place close to my heart, so <laughs> we stopped in here. You know, this is such a vibrant community today, and there are dozens of restaurants and other establishments that we, that we walked by. What are the, you know, the challenges that these businesses are facing today? Yeah, I mean, so, of course, rising rents. That also applies not only to residents, but also to commercial businesses. And, you know, we're just coming out of the pandemic. We're not even fully out of the pandemic, so... Um, certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of concerns there. So I would say the economic well-being of our community is really um, at risk, which also includes sustainability. So for me, especially in the wake of gentrification, so in addition to seeing the dozens of thriving businesses and, and residents of Little Caribbean, you also saw that there is gentrification happening here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I pointed out a building that has apartments for rent for $10,000 a month. I don't know any Little Caribbean resident that is renting an apartment for $10,000 a month. Um, so for us, it was really important to memorialize this community as part of New York City's history. We're the very first and only Little Caribbean, not only in New York City, the United States, the world. Um, and I think it's really important that we also are a part of the, the historic framework and the cultural framework of New York. You wanted to literally get it on the map so that it would always be part of the city's history. And we did. Yeah. 
And Congratulations. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really proud of that, um, that we're on Google Maps, we're working on getting us on, on other maps, but the community is here, um, and, and we love it here. Thank you for taking us on this magnificent tour and giving me a ton of extra food ideas that the next time I swing by here, I'll just do on my own, and maybe I'll even know how to order properly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for this whirlwind tour of eateries. I mean, we are so well hydrated right now and well fed. How often do you do these tours and how could a listener take one of your tours? Yeah, so they can book them directly on our website. You can go to IamCaribbean.com and you just click on tours and you can book it that way or you can email us if you want to bring a group out. Um, a lot of the tours we've been doing lately have been group tours. Um, so you just have to get in touch with us. Yeah, so it's, it was fun. It was great having you guys. I don't hop here in Little Caribbean today. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you. A big thanks to Taisha Maddox of Fordham University for joining us on the show today and to Shelley Worrell of I Am Caribbean for giving us a fabulous tour of just a few spots in Little Caribbean. There's so much to see and do there. There's so much to eat there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And special thanks to Jean-Luc Stanislaus for helping us out during our walking tour and for taking photos, which you can see at BoweryBoysHistory.com. Check out the site or check out the show notes for the names and addresses of the places that we visited today. A huge thank you to the Historic Districts Council and also to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Thank you so much for sponsoring both of these shows in our two-part series on Flatbush and Little Caribbean. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.